Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. If you would join me in the book of Matthew chapter 4. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. It is quite lengthy, so I'll hasten. Matthew 4. 1 through 11, the Bible says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. When the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and settled him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship him. Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And in verse 11, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came. And ministered unto him. And so tonight I just want to talk to you from this subject, empowered to overcome. Aren't you thankful for the Holy Ghost? Aren't you thankful that he's given us power to overcome the enemy and all of his darkness? Would you lay your Bibles down? Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to touch us tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this place. God, we thank you for this hour that is upon us, God, and we thank you for the anointing of your word, God, and for the power that is in your word. We're just asking you now to touch us together, God, touch our hearts to receive that infallible and grafted word of God. Help us to receive it in our hearts now. Anoint me to speak it, God, in Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. amen. If you're going to help me, would you say amen again? Amen. Amen. What a momentous, what a momentous day it had to have been. What a monumental occurrence that had to have taken place. The day that John the Baptist declared Jesus to be mightier than he. John the Baptist declared Jesus to be one whose shoes that he would not be worthy to bear. John was Jesus' closest peer and Undoubtedly, he was the most influential and successful minister of their day. Yet he declared that Jesus was greater, 
mightier and spiritually superior than he was. How marvelous must it have been? Jesus, at this very moment in his life, has now reached known status. As John pointed to him and said, there's one among you. It is him. It is he. He will be the one that will take away the sins of the world. As John emphatically declares his deity among the crowd of people that had assembled, he preached a convicting message of repentance to those religious elite in the crowd that day. He proclaimed this among those who would become Jesus' sharpest opponents. This proclamation was made in the sight of the common Jew all the way to the religious elite and the religious pious among them. Jesus, now the Son of Man, humbly descends into the water to be baptized of John. John says, you are the one that should be baptizing me. Yet Jesus says, if we're going to fulfill the word of God, you must baptize me in this water now. Jesus has now reached, can we say, a famous status. He's known among the people now. No longer is he walking in the midst of the crowd, but he is front and center as John declares who he is and what he is there to do. And what would follow that momentous occasion as he emerged from the River Jordan could never have been anticipated by anyone among them. The windows of heaven opened. The Spirit descended upon him and settled on him, the Bible says, like a dove, both validation and acceptance of what John had so boldly declared. Then, as if that were not enough, a booming voice from heaven sounded as God himself spoke in in this moment. This is my beloved son and in whom I am well pleased. In our modern language, we could safely say that Jesus had reached a moment that he had arrived. He had gotten to the pinnacle. He was at the place that he should be and in the will of God. Yet, what followed this glorious moment has the ability to knock the wind out of anyone's sails. What followed this glorious moment would have no doubt, absolutely no doubt, the power to knock anyone to the ground, to let the air out of the proverbial tires and send them potentially into a state of bitterness before the water could ever dry from his hair, from that muddy river Jordan. That same spirit that had so gloriously rested upon his life, that same spirit that had affirmed and validated everything that was said that day, that same spirit drove him into a dry place to be tempted. And so it goes. And so it is the story with everyone here. So it is with everyone who is filled with the Spirit. Now, if this moment, if this transaction here proves anything for us here tonight, it proves this. The temptation of Jesus proves without a shadow of a doubt that being right in the center of the will of God does not exempt you from temptation. In fact, if any one of us here would be uh, transparent here tonight, if we've lived for God for very long, we, 
We all have experienced it, those times of questioning, those times of confusion, in seasons of seemingly great breakthrough, in those seasons where you are seemingly making strides and great great progress toward God in those seasons of faithfulness, in those seasons when you've made the hard choices to do what is right against everything that is wrong, and when you have made the choice and you have done right, it's in those seasons of those significant spiritual victories. Perhaps it's been a miracle in your life, perhaps a miracle of health. Maybe God has 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 healed you miraculously of a sickness or a disease. Perhaps it was a great uh, season of miracle of finding financial blessing in your life, or maybe you've made great growth in your personal journey with God. It's in these times, in these very seasons, that everything seems to be going in the right direction. Sunday rolls around, and you come to the altar, and God places his spirit on you and in you, perhaps maybe for the first time, or perhaps maybe like has never been before, and you make great strides in your spirituality toward God, and God has has placed his, his, his hand upon your life. You leave church. Everything is great. You feel that surge of energy. You feel that powerful victory that you've just experienced. But hear me, Monday always rears its ugly head. Monday always rolls around and everything can seem to fall apart. Hear me tonight. Significant spiritual experiences are often followed by times of intense spiritual attack. If we were all honest here tonight, we could all attest to this. We've all been in positions with God where we have just left the the prayer room and everything seems to be right and then we leave and some of the most hideous thoughts can pop into your mind. We've all been there. We all understand the reality of it, yet sometimes we don't expect it. We've read the story of how the Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. On the other side, as that water has swallowed up their enemies in absolute victory, as the water has come together on top of the whole army of the Egyptians, and they are standing on the other side of victory, seemingly watching as their chariot wheels just wash up onto the shore. God has completely delivered and they begin to sing a song of victory. They begin to sing the greatest song of victory that has ever been recorded in Exodus 15, 1 through 18. Miriam and all the other women come together and they take up tambourines and they begin to dance. They begin to shout. They begin to praise God in the dance and with their lips and the fruit of their lips. But just fast forward three days. Just go ahead, just a few more pages in scripture and you find them on the other side of that victory in a dry place murmuring and complaining. Victory followed by trial. Greatness followed by seemingly defeat. The theme is reoccurring throughout the Old Testament, but it's not just an Old Testament theme. The New Testament holds themes just just like that. For instance, Paul and Silas, they're on their missionary journeys. They're traveling through the land. They're starting churches and they're having great revival. They're doing the will of God and they're carrying out the purpose of God that is on their life. They are dead set center in the will of God. Yet there is a young girl that comes behind them and begins to agitate 
agitate everything, begins to throw everything out of whack. And Paul turns around and says, come out of her, delivering her. Absolutely instantaneously, the spirit left her. You think that they would throw them a party. You think that the city mayors would get together and give them a certificate. You think that they would all be on, on their side. Yet we see them beaten, jailed, and beaten within an inch of their lives and right in the middle of the spirit and the will of God. And so it is, and so it shall be in every spirit-filled believer's life. Perhaps, not physically, perhaps, maybe physically, we will face adversity. Maybe we won't find ourselves in an absolute real jail. Or maybe we will. Who knows what the next few years, months, or decades could even hold for the church here on this earth. Who, who knows what would become of it. And I am not attempting to scare anyone tonight. I'm certainly not attempting to paint our world gray. But I'm just giving you stark reality. We are all in the position to face adversity. It is absolutely quite possibly that we could all find ourselves in spiritual attack before we even leave the building. God can have a mighty move. He can touch every single one of us. We can feel the power surging through our veins and we could leave here and be attacked by the enemy. And so we must, we must without a shadow of doubt be ready for his attack. We can be perfectly in the will of God yet at the same time be relentlessly attacked by Satan. Most, if not all, have uttered these words and these questions. Why me? Why? Why me? Why am I battling this chronic illness? Why do I face such sexual temptation in my life? Why does my mind seem to be inundated with such depressing thoughts? Why do others seem to be getting ahead in life and making strides toward God while I'm stuck right here or either going backward? Why? Why? Why me? Why? But what we must understand is that we can't ask the questions why. We just have to understand that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. We must understand that it is the trial and the, and, and the temptation that comes against us is absolutely not an indication of one's spirituality or lack thereof. You see, we're quick to embrace all the positive promises of the Word of God. I want them. I want to embrace them. We're quick to take on that positivity. We like the positivity. There's churches that are full all across America because they're preaching positive messages. Just give here, do a little bit here, just believe, and you'll have a three-car garage and a home in Vail, Colorado, and you can just live a great life. We want that positivity. We want the blessings of God. We prefer the accolades, but just as much as God gives us good promises, just as much as God gives us good things in our lives, God is also brutally honest with us in everything that he said. Jesus 
promised in the world you shall have tribulation. Paul instructed Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Peter would describe the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold. And as painful and as undesirable as they may be, being in the will of God includes both the discomfort of trial, absolute tribulation, and in anybody's life, temptation. And so with this reality in mind, with this in the forefront of our mind tonight, it is important to emphasize this brutally honest truth. We will be tempted. We will face temptation. There's no place on this earth that somebody will not face temptation. There's no age limit to temptation. Whether you are 8, 18, or 89, temptation is always around the corner. But hear me, our response to the temptation will determine the result of the temptation. And so many times, many times, far too many Christians respond to temptation in a short-sighted or a selfish manner. Often temptation is successful because we don't think through the consequences. You see, decisions about our actions and decisions about our reactions are frequently made without regard to consequences because of lack of wisdom and understanding. But what we must understand in the middle of the temptation is exactly what is at stake. You see, our ability to overcome temptation is strongly correlated to our ability to recognize the goals of Satan himself. One very, very, very good tactic to have in war and in battle is to know your enemy. Not to be friends with him, but to know him. Just what is his goal? What is he up to? What is he trying to accomplish? And so with that, let's talk about those things. First and foremost, Satan will try to lure us into satisfying a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. If we were transparent for a moment, we could all agree. And I hope I get an amen on this. A one-day fast is a struggle. A three-day fast is painful. A one-week fast is excruciating. Now, imagine 40 days without anything to eat. 40 days of excruciating pain without food. His physical weakness left him, no doubt, emaciated. His face shrunken from the lack of nourishment. His body feeble and weak. It left him vulnerable. It left him tired. It left him weary. And it left him a target for 
temptation. No wonder Paul said, don't get weary in well do in well season. We will reap in due season. Don't don't get weary in well doing. Don't let this this thing crowd you out and crowd you down so much that that you become weary and, and you become complacent in your life because that's when Satan will attack at its peak. So his physical weakness has left him vulnerable. And that's when the tempter appears. And that's when he uses the very thing that he needed physically the most. An innocent proposition. A legitimate need. If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. It was a reasonable challenge. And it was based on fact. Jesus was legitimately hungry. Fact. There would be nothing wrong with him eating. Fact. In fact, if we just read a few more pages in this gospel, we find that Jesus has a knack for doing good things with bread when he fed 5,000 people. He knew who he was. And he knew the power that he had on the inside of him. For Jesus to meet this need, this legitimate need of hunger, would have been totally legitimate for him to perform. But what Jesus realized in that moment is what many of us fail to grasp. Legitimate needs must never be met illegitimately. Let me say that again. Legitimate needs must never be met illegitimately. You see, Jesus reaches way, way back in history to exert a pivotal truth when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In referencing Deuteronomy 8 and 3, he was reminding Satan that God has always proven himself to be an own time God. God has always proven himself to be capable of providing what his children and what his people need. Not only that, but there are times that he allowed them to go hungry. Now let that soak in for just a minute. He allowed them to be hungry. Now that goes against a lot of what's preached behind pulpits today. It, it, it flies in the face of some of this easy believism, some of this watered down stuff that's pushed across pulpits today that if you'll just that if you'll just come to church if you'll just clap your hands on time you can live however you want to live and God will bless you but I'm here to tell you that that is not the way that it works God allowed them to be hungry, to get them into a position, and to get them into a habit of trusting His Word. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to hang on every word that He has spoken. I want to trust in 
his word. You see, it's in these first three temptations of the devil that Jesus demonstrated that trusting in the word of God is more important than meeting legitimate needs. It's certainly the temptation that we all face here today. By certain degrees, we've all come against this. Whatever station we may find ourselves in life, we all face this universal temptation of fulfilling legitimate needs by illegitimate means or ways. Hear me tonight. This is why it is so absolutely vitally important that we stay spirit-filled and spirit-led so that we can see the wiles of the devil coming a mile away. I don't want to wait until he's standing right next to me to to, to make up my mind on what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do, but I want the Spirit to lead me and guide me into the way that I should go. We must, we must walk in the Spirit to be like Jesus and revert back to God's Word when we are presented with temptation. But since his job is seldomly ever done, Satan comes at him again. Secondly, Satan will tempt us into testing God's goodness with our recklessness. Perhaps we've all been familiar with privileged people. You know who I'm talking about. Those people that say, I can just sort of kind of do whatever I want to do. I can push the envelope for what is legal or even moral, seemingly with no regard, with no consequences, because I'm either related to or I know somebody that's got connections. I can run down the road 85 miles an hour in a 45. My granddaddy's a state trooper. He got pretty high up there, so I just say his name and I said, just slow it, slow it down. I just do what I want to. I just go where I want to. But hear me today. This is not so far-fetched. We as Christians can we can adopt this same mentality. We can we can pull into our lives that same mindset. But hear me today, we can't afford to get in that position. We can't afford to take an entitlement attitude toward living for God as if we can just live however we want to live, just live to the wind because my heavenly Father will just bail me out when I get myself in trouble. I can't live with presumptuous behavior because presumptuous behavior is not wise. Let me tell you why presumptuous behavior is not wise because God is not obligated to any one of us. God is not obligated to me. He was not obligated to pluck me out of sin. He was not obligated to go to a cross and die for me. He is not obligated to me in any way. Just because his word says I will never leave you and I will never forsake you does not give me a license to be given in to the temptation of presumption. And so it's the very temptation that Satan used and he attempted on Jesus. If thou be the son of God, cast thyself down for it's written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. It is the temptation to do something reckless 
and then presume upon the grace and mercy of God to bail us out. Just live financially undisciplined and then beg God to bail you out of your physical mess with a financial uh, miracle. Just be inattentive to your spouse and then pray for God to change their their heart toward you. Make a short-sighted moral decision and then plead with God to spare you the long-term consequences. It's then in Jesus' case that he was to, to take a reckless leap off a high tower, a high building to prove a spiritually relative truth. God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. But that doesn't mean that I can walk off the edge of eternity and expect God just to pick me back up because he's obligated to do it. Just because his word says that he would doesn't mean that he is obligated to do so. So Jesus realized. He saw through this fallacy and this logic, even through Satan, even though he used scripture to support his temptation. Jesus understood a timeless principle You do not tempt the Lord your God because if you tempt the Lord your God, you may find yourself all alone. Just ask Samson. Samson laid in the lap of the enemy and the Bible says that he said, I'll just get up and I'll just shake myself like I've always done. I'll get up and I'll just take the gates like I already did. But the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord lifted from him and he knew it not. You don't tempt. You don't tempt God by placing yourself in harm's way just because He'll bail you out. It was one of Israel's key downfalls in the wilderness. They regularly presumed presumed God's grace. They regularly tested His patience and they often questioned His mercy. They made rash decisions and they expected God just to bail them out. Although God is merciful, although God is absolute full of grace, we cannot afford the sin of presumption that whatever we do, God will just save us to willfully disobey God, to willfully go against his word and to expect him to forgive out of obligation is foolish. That is why David astutely prayed, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins let them not have dominion over me he said that in Psalm 19 and 13 he understood the danger of presuming upon God's grace and those who are submitted to the will of God those who are filled with his spirit will always cling to the truths of God's word walking in the Spirit will lead us to consider our actions and ask very poignant questions. Am I acting in a way that shows grace has empowered me or am I acting in a way that presumes upon grace? We've heard it time and time again. People have told me with their own lips, once saved, always saved, we're living under grace. All you've got to do is make a profession of your faith and then you can live however you choose to live and God will save you. You can walk off the edge of a bridge absolutely in the middle of sin and God has already given you the grace 
to make it home. I'm sorry to say, I hope you're right. But I can't tempt God like that. I can't live to the wind and then expect God just to save me out of obligation. And so the spirit which Jesus was so full of empowered him to recognize the sinister trap of the testing. Thirdly, Satan will tempt us to make easy yet improper routes to a godly destination. He knows the word. The Bible says, again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Again, this shows the relentless nature of the tempter. Angle after angle. Tactic after tactic. They've made none effect. Yet he continues to strike. Each temptation becoming increasingly deceitful. That's why it is so absolutely important that when we are filled with the Holy Ghost, that is not the only time that we are filled with His Spirit. That's not the only time that we pick up our Bible. That's not the only time that we make it to the altar and pray to God. That's not the only time that we repent, but we've got to live a life toward God and allow God's Spirit to fill us and guide us because the further we go, the more deceitful it's going to get. He understands that His time is at hand and He's going to try everything that that he can to trip every single one of us up and it would be best in our interest to see it coming before it arrives. So, angle after angle. Now Satan presents Jesus with a scenario by which he could bypass the suffering of the cross. He plays right into the thing that he was destined to feed off of in the garden, right to the flesh. Bypass the suffering of the cross. Go around all the heartache. Go around all the agony. All he had to do was bow down and worship Satan, and Satan would relinquish the dominion of the world, the whole world that Jesus came to ultimately rule. Of course, Jesus would have foregone his primary objective of redeeming the sins of humanity had he gone this route. Satan, however, presented him with a shortcut, a workaround, a loophole that would have put him on the throne of the dominion that he was destined to have without all the suffering. It's that temptation 
that we are facing, I believe this wholeheartedly, to the core of my being. That is the temptation that we are all facing here, even in this moment, to cut corners, to just make a few compromises, to reach a goal that is intended by God for us to make. God has a promise on this place. God has a promise on this people. But hear me today. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy way outs. We've got to do it His way and by His word. It's that temptation to just cut a few corners, to make a few compromises, to reach even a God called destiny. But I can hear the Spirit whispering. That still small voice, if we could all just put our ear to the ground and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. There are no shortcuts to a godly destination. There are no easy ways to a God called destiny. Jesus allowed the Spirit of God that was so in him to speak through him in his moment of temptation when he said get thee hence Satan for it is written thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. I'm not making any compromises. I'm not going around any shortcuts. I'm not doing anything that is going to to, to prevent me from carrying out the will of God in my life and I wonder if I've gathered with some people here tonight who will lift their hands to heaven and say I'm not going to go through any shortcuts I'm going to do what God is calling me to do in my life When we are spirit led even into the wilderness to be tempted even into a dry and dusty place for a time of testing if we are spirit led we will not lose sight that we are servants to God and him only we do not serve man we do not serve sin and we do not serve the the thought processes of this world we serve God and God alone we do not serve convenience and we cannot hear me we cannot serve our desires we must live soberly and we must live unto God solely in worship and servanthood to him and hear me tonight serving God is not a sprint but serving God is a test of endurance that's why Hebrews 12 and 1 says let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Jesus warned, in your patience possess ye your souls. When you walk in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul declared emphatically, ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so we have got to be the people of God. We've got to be patient and we've got to wait on God. We've got to, in our patience, possess our souls and work out our own salvation with fear and trifling. And we must not, hear me, we must not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Satan's 
number one goal. His number one position is to rob you and to rob me of our potential, of our future. His number one goal is to take away the potential of our future. Satan attempted to rob Jesus Christ of his future because he understood that his potential had the potential to bring his kingdom crashing down. Can I say to you tonight, if you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, if you've been baptized in that wonderful name that is above every name, you've had a potential placed on your life for a future of greatness with him. Potential is saturated in this building tonight and purpose is in the heart of every man, woman, and child and Satan is looking to take it away from you. He wishes to destroy every single one of us however he can. He'll tempt us to make wrong decisions. He'll tempt us to have an ought with our brother. He'll tempt us to hear his lies and to listen to his voice and to to follow his way because he understands that there is purpose on your life. If there's young people here tonight, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. You need to find yourself every time you have the chance at an altar of prayer and let God fill you over and over and over again with his spirit. There are so many things that the devil is wanting to take you through, but hear me tonight. If you'll just find yourself in the will of God, God can take you over and around and under those things and so as I come to a close if our musicians will come he wishes to destroy every one of us but we must we must be spirit filled Spirit-led to make long-sighted decisions rather than short-sighted decisions. We cannot be fooled into walking in the flesh, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, thus forfeiting your future and purpose in God. In closing tonight, Thomas Costain's history, The Three Edwards. He tells of the 14th century Duke Reynald III of what is now called Belgium. As a result of a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother, Edward, successfully revolted against him. When Edward captured Reynald, he had a cell built around Reynald though the windows and the doors were always left open. The problem with this arrangement was that Reynold was grossly overweight and he had no way to fit through the openings in the room. Reynold 
needed only to lose weight to leave the room. But Edward knew that his older brother could not control his appetite. And every day, he sent him delicious food to eat. Temptation. As you can imagine, during this period of time, Raynal grew larger and larger. Anytime someone accused Duke Edward of treating Reynold cruel, he would simply say, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynold stayed in that room for 10 years and was not released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined that he died just one year within being released. He was a prisoner of his own appetite. He allowed his own desires to keep him hostage. As children of God, we must never become slaves to our carnal appetites because the Spirit of God is the only thing that will empower us not to mind the things of the flesh. Paul warned in Romans 8 and 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Stand with me tonight. We are all going to come to a place of temptation. It doesn't happen just once. You beat that and then you got nothing else to worry about. That's what Samson thought. Well, I made it out of that one. I can do it again. I picked up the gates of the city and carried them off. Just shake myself again. The Bible says he wist not that the Spirit of God had departed from him. And so whether we are driven into the wilderness of temptation, we must be spirit-filled and spirit-led to guide us away from the temptation. God said, I'll make a way of escape for you. I've given you my word. 
I said I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And so Satan may be tempting you now in your season of temptation to just cut around some corners, just ease up on a few things, make a few compromises here and there. Nobody will know. Nobody's going to notice. And I'll wind up at that godly destination that God is trying so desperately to get me to. But let me say it again. The Spirit is whispering. Yea, the Spirit is calling. There are no shortcuts to a godly destination. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There is no other way around it. You must submit. You must be spirit-filled and you must be spirit-led because when you make it into that dry place, when you make it into that area of temptation, the Spirit will lead you away from the temptation and lead you into it is written. It is written that God is going to see me through this. It is written that all the promises of God are yea and amen. It is written that God will never leave me, but he's always going to hold me under the shadow of his wing. But only if I am spirit filled and spirit led and hear me your future, your children's future, and all those that are far off future depends on it. And so now, I wonder if you will lift your hands and lift your voice toward heaven and ask God to refill you with an absolute absolute power from on high that God would seal the word in your heart and lead you to the place that you can say it is written it is written it is written come on lift your voice to heaven lift your voice in your hands and surrender to God and let him speak to your heart in Jesus name in Jesus name This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. 
Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.